The U.S. defense industry is large, complex, and competitive. It is also lucrative for those companies able to navigate it successfully. The American Society of Military Comptrollers helps bridge the gap between the boardroom and the battlefield while supporting transformation in the defense sector. The Business of Defense podcast brings you inside the companies working to achieve this directly from the business leaders and to understand how they create value for their companies and their customers. For more information on ASMC, visit asmconline.org. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Majority Report, the Tom Hartman Program, the David Pakman Show, and the Young Turks. And a quick note of caution. Now, I know it may sound enticing or like just a bit of harmless fun, but remember, kids, protect yourself and others from the hidden dangers and just say no to libertarianism. I like to have conservatives on my program. Because it takes very little to show the sane portion of America, even the uninformed, but the sane portion of America, how big a whack jobs, how full of crap these people on the right are. They're really wacky in the Tea Party. But the libertarians, their thing falls apart as well. It's why we had Andrew Schiff on, because he just keeps talking and talking and talking. And I say, let a libertarian, give a libertarian 45 minutes to go up there and talk with some, you know, moderately challenging questions. And you could be done with the entire libertarian philosophy for the rest of our lives. That doesn't mean there aren't elements of it that are fine, but the fact of the matter is, the difference between liberals and libertarians is liberals look towards results. It is, what are the results of given policies? Libertarians create this process that they think is somehow <clears throat> truer and realer, even though it, it's never existed. I mean, you ask a libertarian, wh when was the last time we had a free market in this country? Never sort of i mean we've had more you know maybe 1800s what really we had a free market like there was no crony capitalism in the 1800s it doesn't exist the free market does not exist there is no unencumbered market there is no you know i like i say maybe in somalia maybe and there it's just you know that's what a free market is a free market is feudalism it is who's got more guns or, you know, whatever it is, uh, swords and uh, arrows. They're the ones who are, going to, uh, who are going to accumulate the most wealth. Capitalism can only function properly with strong government controls that protect consumers and workers from the excesses of capitalism. It's not even the excesses, it's the operation of capitalism.
Asians are really black, white, mixed, and Asian. In this case, there's no discrimination. Ruling the world with capitalization and a so-called globalization. The way of life, selling you salvation, faithful freeness, and dangerous situation. I read an amazing piece uh, over in the Huffington Post uh, business section and uh, about, well, the question, the headline, does studying economics breed greed? And I thought, whoa, really? And, but Professor Adam Grant, a professor at the Warden School, in fact, the youngest tenured professor, and the author of Give and Take, A Revolutionary Approach to Success, his website, giveandtake.com, A-N-D, giveandtake.com, is with us. Um, Professor Adam Grant, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for joining us. So does studying economics cause people to change their worldview and become greedier? Well, I think it might. You know, I think my, my job as a social scientist is to take a look at the data. And there are some studies that suggest it's possible. Uh, we've got evidence that economics professors give less to charity than people in other fields. That they're also... If you've studied economics, you're more likely to say greed is morally acceptable and good, and you're also more willing to deceive others for personal gain and violate rules of fairness. Now, is it possible that your line of causality is backwards? That uh, you know, I mean, we know that you know about one, roughly one percent of our population are sociopaths, people who don't feel empathy for other people, and um, as you get closer on and there is seems to be some uh, you know sort of a spectrum of sociopathy as people get closer and closer to that spectrum um they tend to be more um into things abstract things like economics and less into things like you know uh psychology or social work or something like that you know that involve interacting with humans could it be that people who are dysfunctional in the area of working with other people who don't easily feel empathy but do easily manage numbers in their heads, end up in the field of economics. Yeah, I, I think my read of the data is that it's probably not either or, it's both and. Uh-huh. So there's evidence, for example, from Switzerland that students who chose to study economics were actually less likely to give to people in need at the start, even before they began studying economics. Right. But I think the, you know, that doesn't mean causality can't also run in the opposite direction. And we've got some pretty neat studies that I think speak to the idea that economics training and education might actually tilt people more towards selfishness. Well, I can One tell way you to do that, of course, is to track what happens to people as they take economics classes. And the evidence there says that the more time you spend studying economics, the more your values of helpfulness and loyalty and responsibility to others drop. There's also some evidence that after people take economics courses, people expect others to be more selfish. And as a result, they're more cautious and less generous because they think, look, if everybody's going to be selfish, then I've got to protect myself by doing the same. And uh, two colleagues, Andy Malinsky and Joshua Margolis, and I actually did a, a fun study where we randomly assigned executives to just unscramble sentences with words about economics mm -hmm. or neutral words. Mm -hmm. And then we found that when they had to deliver bad news to others, they actually expressed less compassion and concern if they had been exposed to those economic words. Now... I remember back in the, I'm an old fart, and I remember back in, in 69, 68 or 69, taking an econ class. Um, it was either at LCC or MSU, but whatever. Um, and the uh, professor, the, the essence of that class was uh, Keynesian economics. It was here's how we got out of the Great Depression. 
it was that the that the that the goal of an economy is to support the social structure around it to support society and economic decisions should be made based on their their consequences and impact on society when when one of my kids was going through uh through college and studying economics and i remember this cuz you know he would come home and say here's what the professor said today and i'm like you know pulling my hair out really um it was it clearly uh, you know a uh, not a keynesian who was he was studying it, it was instead uh you know somebody who was a disciple of the chicago school you know of of of, of hayek and 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 what's his name uh friedman and and, and company and basically what they were being taught is that the ultimate value is greed and that if everybody just acted in their own self-interest everything would be fine could it be i mean if you look back at the history of economics adam smith did write uh, uh you know the, the the wealth of nations and there is that s- single sentence once in the book that's actually a cautionary note about the invisible hand of the marketplace but he also wrote a book called a theory of moral sentiments which you know we had to read back in the day but now kids don't even know exists warning us about selfishness warning us about laissez-faire capitalism and could it be that it's not economics generically but it's the type of economics that's being taught i mean you got the Koch brothers who are actually funding econ chairs at colleges around the united states if libertarian leaning professors are put in those chairs yeah, Tom, I, I think you, you have that exactly right. It's, it's certainly not all brands of economics that have this effect, right? So there, there's evidence that learning about macroeconomics and political economics doesn't necessarily breed more selfish behavior, whereas when you study business economics with a strong emphasis on, on sort of sole profit maximization, you're a little bit more likely to see that effect. Hmm. And you know, You've I, gotten I that granular that in your data. I'm sorry? You've gotten that granular in your data. Well, I haven't, but uh, a couple of economists actually have. So uh-huh. it's, it's been really neat to be able to tease those those effects apart, at least you know for for starters. Yeah. And I do think it, it harkens back to Adam Smith, right? He wrote in the Moral Sentiments that how selfish soever man be supposed, there are some principles in our nature that interest us in the fortunes of others. Right. And we may get nothing from benefiting other people except just the pleasure of seeing them better off. And yet, you know, that may be a force that motivates us. Yes. And I think if we incorporate these principles into our economics courses, like we often do when we teach behavioral economics, we're in pretty good shape. Right. I think so. I think so it could be that what, what when we start to say, look, the resources are completely scarce, and everyone needs to be selfish. I, I have talked with a number of young people who have gone over to the libertarian side. They, you know, they were first attracted by uh, legalized pot and legalized prostitution. And I've always referred to libertarians as Republicans who want to smoke dope and get laid. But these people, they get sucked into this whole, you know, the Ayn Rand thing and the whole selfishness, greed is good stuff. And they start, you know, talking about, well, cut everybody off food stamps. Do away with Social Security. We don't need no damn social safety net. It should be the, and it's like, they've never, these are people who've never experienced genuine want. And it's almost like they're being trained to be sociopaths. Thoughts on Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's certainly a complicated puzzle. But I, I will say that, you know, if, again, if we go back to Adam Smith, right, he said, look, markets are imperfect, and there are going to be some problems that are not going to be solved by sort of naturally created systems that, that operate based on standard economic principles. Right. Uh, we, we normally call them externalities, right, and they can be both positive and negative. Yep. And so we do need some level of regulation to make sure that, that problems that are not easily solved through profitable mechanisms can be solved through other means and I would certainly stand by that recommendation. Man, I have this
promoter said You didn't draw too good Don't you know that I'm in the red I said come on and come off it You ain't the only one this town Trying to make profit Trying to make profit Trying to make profit Trying to make just a all right, Lewis, let's do some fact-checking. A liberal group, Occupy Democrats, put out a post that went viral claiming that nine out of the ten poorest states are Republican. Right-wing groups absolutely flipped out, so PolitiFact decided to fact-check it. Turns out it is actually true. Occupy Democrats said that they were evaluating income based on per-person income. We looked at that along with median household income and median family income. By all three measures, Lewis, according to PolitiFact, nine out of the ten poorest states voted Republican in the last presidential election. In fact, they voted Republican in the last four elections. This is according to census data. Nine of the ten states with the lowest per-person income income levels were Mississippi, Arkansas, Idaho, West Virginia, Kentucky, Utah, Alabama, South Carolina, and Oklahoma. The census data also show that nine of the ten with the lowest median household income, if that's how you want to measure uh, poverty, were also red. Mississippi, Arkansas, West Virginia, Kentucky, Alabama, Tennessee, Louisiana, South Carolina, and Oklahoma. And if you look at lowest median family income, you can also come up with the same thing. The argument that is being made by some on the right, now that the numbers have been shown to be exactly spot on, is, well, it's because the red states have to subsidize the blue states and their stupid, wasteful spending. Wrong. Actually, the blue states subsidize the red states as a complete matter of fact. And then you get to the following argument, which is really the one a lot of right-wingers believe, which is, well, it's because of the immorality of the blue states that leads to a lot more money and the red states by being moral the way God said are simply less focused on money if you believe that you've certainly escaped the tractor beam of rational thinking and there's probably nothing I could say to convince you otherwise yeah David if you believe that why is your preacher driving a Bentley right (laughs) Right, yeah that's also the question which is exactly what I thought of when I hear of that argument are you aware of those mega churches have you ever seen those do you go to one of those Uh, by the way If we look at the other side, nine of the ten states with the highest per-person income voted blue in 2012, Colorado, Connecticut, Maryland, New Jersey, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New York, Virginia, and Washington. The only red state, this is, brace yourselves, this is the funniest thing. The one red state on the list of the top ten richest states in terms of voting in 2012 is Alaska, And it could be argued that the reason Alaska is even on the list of richest states is because of the socialist policy of redistribution of oil profits to Alaska residents. How ironic, Lewis, that the one red state in the list of 10 wealthiest states has a straight-up socialist redistribution of corporate revenue policy. Amazing.
One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. So the GOP is in a bit of a civil war. Uh, what are the two different sides here? One is the so-called Tea Party faction, but they're not really Tea Party. They're just extremist right-wing billionaires, largely. There's nothing to do with the grassroots, as I'm about to show you. Uh, but they're in a fight with uh, the more quote-unquote mainstream chamber of commerce and multinational corporations. So uh, there are no good guys in the story. It's basically the Koch brothers versus corporations that are taking over our government and our lives. <laughs> so nobody's a winner, except for the fact that they're at least fighting so, and wasting money against each other. Now, the guy who uh, loved the Citizens United decision was Mitch McConnell. He's the leader of the Republicans in the Senate. And he keeps talking about how uh, corporations and, and individuals being able to spend unlimited money in politics is freedom. Well, it turns out they have the freedom to spend it against him as well. He's in a race right now where he's being primaried. I'm going to get to him in a second. But first, let me give you the numbers as to why Citizens United has done some significant damage to Republicans. Now, they get primaried far more than Democrats do. Now, look, I, overall, I support the primary process. I wish the Democrats would get primaried a hell of a lot more. Uh, run some real progressives instead of the corporatist Democrats that we have. But, of course, that's not the way the system works. So now, let's take a look at 2012 congressional primaries, and you begin to get a sense of the disparity. In GOP primaries, there was $36 million spent. And in Democratic primaries, there was only $10 million spent, meaning that the Republicans are fighting each other to a much greater degree, and to some degree doing damage to one another. Now, I think, in the meanwhile, they're pushing policy all the way to the right, right? So in some sense, it's mission accomplished. But in terms of politics, they're hurting each other and sometimes hurting each other pretty bad and spending a lot of money to do so. In fact, uh, Caton Dawson, who's the GOP chairman in South Carolina, says, right now the Republicans all have their cannons aimed at each other and the Democrats are getting a free ride. Well, uh, that's partly true. Now, there are a number of conservative groups who've decided, yeah, you know what, we're going to go after fellow Republicans, including Club for Growth and the Senate Conservatives Fund. Club for Growth even has a website uh, that's called, quote, Primary My Congressman. <laughs> so they're obviously in the business of doing this significantly. Now, since Citizens United, they've actually gotten a lot stronger. Uh, in the 2008 cycle, before Citizens United, they spent $10.3 million. Well, after Citizens United took away any restrictions on giving to groups like Club for Growth, they wound up getting $23.4 million and spending that in that cycle. So more than double their spending. Now, groups like Club for Growth pretend that they're grassroots Tea Party groups or super conservative right-wing groups. They're like, but it's grassroots! We're just trying to represent the American people. 
Is that right? Hmm. Well, let's find out. Washington Post explains. More than $12 million of the money that Club for Growth Action raised in the last cycle came in the form of six- and seven-figure checks from donors such as tech investor Peter Thiel, private equity titan John Childs, New Jersey investor Virginia James, and Texas home builder Bob Perry, who each gave at least $1 million, according to campaign finance records. Wow, so grassroots, more than half of your money comes from people giving million-dollar checks. It ain't grassroots. It's as fake as it gets. It's rich people saying, no, I want even lower taxes and less regulation. If I'm a banker, let me rob more. And then if I get in trouble, make the taxpayers for it. If I'm a polluter, let me pollute more and take away more regulation so I don't have to be checked on anything. And I can put it, uh, my chemicals into the river or whatever it needs to be. Now, the corporate guys are saying, hey, listen, guys, we're pretty good at this. I mean, over the last 40 years, we've basically robbed the American people blind. Whatever extra money that they were owed because of their gains in productivity, we took and put it in our pockets. The executives did, the shareholders did, our investors did. Leave well enough alone. But the greedy can't stop being greedy. So... The Koch brothers of the world and the other guys who gave that money to Club for Growth, the Senate Conservatives Fund, their Freedom Works, etc., say, no, I want even more. And that's who's fighting one another now. In fact, the Senate Conservatives Fund is putting in a million dollars to help Matt Bevan run against Mitch McConnell in a primary in Kentucky. A million bucks. They've already put that in. And they're not alone. Freedom Works, that's the Koch Brothers group, says when it's time to bring out the vote, well, they're going to put in another $500,000 to get out the vote in favor of Matt Bevan. In fact, right now, these groups have ads out there against Mitch McConnell where they say, quote, he helped Barack Obama and Harry Reid fund Obamacare. What's, what's that I hear, Mitch McConnell? You calling for a wolf pack? What happened? I, I, I thought money going into these races was freedom. All of a sudden, when it's money against you, you're like, yeah, well, I mean, um, I, don't know, I mean, uh, maybe we should get money out of politics. <laughs> now, to be fair to Mitch McConnell, he hasn't said that yet. In fact, he's, of course, gone in the opposite direction. I like how we're being fair to him by showing you what a bigger prick he is. He's argued in McCutcheon, which is a new Supreme Court case, that more limits should be lifted so that the multinational corporations on his side can give more to the parties in an unlimited way. Whatever restrictions were left, they say, nah, lift those. And let me fight against the Koch brothers by getting ExxonMobil and all the other guys who got my back to turn even a bigger cannon against them. And don't worry, that cavalry is here. There's already now new groups, some of them are old, some of them are new, uh, that are founded by the corporations to go fight against the Tea Party. They're called American Action Network and Main Street Partnership. Those are two that are now ma backing not just Mitch McConnell, but establishment Republicans. Uh, they're funded, uh, they're run, I should say, by former congressmen like Stephen LaTourette La and former senator like Norm Coleman, who's as establishment a Republican as you can get from Minnesota. Uh, and the Senate Conservatives Fund used to be run by Jim DeMint, who's a former senator from South Carolina. So they've all found ways to milk the different rich people for money to spend against one another in a war of epic greed. And finally, the Washington Post explains that uh, 
the corporations aren't going to take this lying down. They really want to be able to take their winnings off the table here. They explain centrist GOP groups and industry organizations, such as the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, are firing back, laying plans to spend heavily to bolster McConnell and other establishment Republicans. Well, the battle is joined. And if uh, the Koch brothers win, we all lose because we get even more extreme right-wingers who will block government from doing anything for the people. They'll be even more obstructionist, they will not negotiate on anything, and they'll bring down one government shutdown after another. Now, if the Chamber of Commerce and the multinational corporations win, well then, they'll do things like the grand bargain, where yes, the government will be running, but they will have bipartisan agreement from corporatist Democrats and Republicans to cut things like Social Security and Medicare that help us in favor of corporate tax cuts. So yes, there is a GOP civil war, and yes, you'll see organizations like MSNBC celebrated. But the reality is, it's a lose-lose for us. Until you get money out of politics, the only people who can win are either the Koch brothers or the Chamber of Commerce, but certainly not the American people. There is only one way to fight back against both of them. You get money out of politics entirely. You know who's doing that. Wolf-Pack.com. Any way you can help, man. Sign a petition, become a volunteer, become a member, wolf-pack.com. Because these guys, they're never going to let up. So we got to fight back just as hard. guy who invented like uh, the use of the word democrat climate change climate change climate and change. on and on i mean we all know frank death tax that's death his tax. biggest one frank lunch the ethically and follically uh, challenged um pollster who was censured by the uh polling association for his fudging of numbers on the so-called contract for America back in the day of Newt Gingrich. And apparently, according to this piece in The Atlantic, he's having an existential crisis. The crisis began, he says, after last year's presidential election, when Luntz became profoundly depressed. (laughs) For more than a month, he tried to stay occupied, but nothing could keep his attention. Finally, six weeks after the election, during a meeting of his consulting company in Las Vegas, he fell apart. Leaving his employees behind, he flew back to his mansion in Los Angeles, where he stayed for three weeks, barely going outside or talking to anyone. I just gave up, Luntz says. It was what Luntz heard from the American people that scared him. They were contentious and argumentative. I want to remind you, as I started this piece off, by saying this is the guy who said you should refer to Democrats as Democrat, not the Democratic Center from so-and-so, the Democrat, because it sounds like the word rat.
They didn't listen to each other as they once had. They weren't interested in hearing other points of view. They were divided at one against the other, black versus white, men versus women, young versus old, rich versus poor. Says the guy who said, stop talking about the estate tax, because that reminds people that this is about taxing the aristocracy so they can't control all the wealth through generations after generations. Call it the death tax so the 98.7% of Americans who are not in any way implicated by this estate tax, or 99.7, I should say, they'll feel they've got some buy-in, too. They want to impose their opinions rather than express them, is the way he describes what he saw. And they're picking up their leads from here in Washington, i.e., me. The people in his focus groups, he perceived, had absorbed the president's message of class divisions, have and have-nots, of redistribution. And the people, he believed, were wrong. Here's a guy who's supposed to measure public opinion, and now he decides it's depressing because they're wrong. Having spent his career telling politicians what the people wanted to hear, Luntz now believed the people had been corrupted and were beyond saving. <laughs> I don't recall the people wanting to be saved by Frank Luntz, but maybe he uh, knows something that I don't know. He boasts that he speaks to one Fortune 500 CEO every day. He proudly claims that his famous catchphrases like branding the health care reform a government takeover in 2010 are the organic product of his focus groups. But what does he want to say to the American people? You should not expect a handout. You should not even expect a safety net. When my house burns down, I should not go to the government to rebuild it. I should have the savings, and if I don't, my neighbors should pitch in for me. Because I would do that for them. The entitlement he now hears from the focus group he convenes amounts, in his view, to a permanent poisoning of the electric. One that cannot be undone. Luntz would also like to break into Hollywood as a consultant. But, alas, he can't get his calls returned. He can't figure it out. He thinks it must be a partisan thing. In every other industry, he says, 90% of his presentations results in a contract. But in entertainment, he pitches and pitches and pitches. And things seem to go well, but then there's some excuse. Not this time. Not the right project. He's trying to sell TV shows. Maybe that, like, inspiring concept series about the uh, lobbyist who shuts down hospitals and public schools just didn't resonate No, as a good formula. Uh, let, here's a tip, buddy. Um, update the rug. That may help you when you walk into that room. I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm talking from a guy who's been in showbiz. You got, you got showbiz experience. And I know that... They'd rather come in and see you be honest with them or get a better hairpiece. It just it just speaks of, 
You're not a player. I got to tell you, when I hear about that fire thing, I wouldn't be surprised if he starts calling this show once a week. And here's the worst part, folks. When he's at home in Los Angeles, in that 14,000-square-foot mansion, the newsroom is the high point of Luntz's week. He turns off his phone and gets a plate of spaghetti bolognese and a Coke Zero and sits in front of his 85-inch television alone in his 14,000-square-foot home. That's as good as it gets for me, he says. Shortly after this piece came out, it was announced that the newsroom was being canceled <laughs> after this season. So Frank Luntz got nothing left to you we all hold up our can of coke zero <laughs> pour a little out for you buddy hang in there and can i suggest maybe battlestar galactica <laughs> when you read that though wasn't it we talked about this how the whole time you're reading it, you're like yeah, whatever. This like terrible person who's poisoned modern politics, made an unbelievable amount of money. Yeah, like cry me a river. And then you get to the spaghetti bolognese, Coke Zero in the newsroom, and you're like, this yeah. actually is really sad. I love the fact, too, that you get like spaghetti bolognese. I mean, God knows. He sits down probably. I just imagine him with a huge bowl oh, yeah. of spaghetti bolognese. Oh, yeah. And then going, but... Want to cut down on my calories, so I'm going to have that Coke Zero. Meanwhile, I was like, God knows what they put in that Coke Zero. <laughs> it's definitely worse for you than the bolognese. The only thing that can make it worse is that uh, they announce we're taking Coke Zero off the market. <laughs> poor, poor Franklin. But it shows you again, even even a really successful, accomplished guy like that, it all they all blame Obama. Yeah, it's always a projection on Obama. Like God knows what his actual issues are. He's clearly got some real stuff going on, right? And it's all Obama's fault. Everything. I've always done what the people wanted when they agreed with what I wanted. Now that they don't want what I want, I'm completely disillusioned. There's something completely wrong with the people. And and really, what he's saying is that look, the results were so overwhelming that I couldn't even fudge them. No, exactly. I can't manipulate people as effectively anymore. You can fool some people. But you can't fool all the people all the time. So now we see the light. What you gonna we gonna stand up for yeah, right. yeah, So yeah. you better get up, stand up in the morning. Give it up, stand up for your eyes. Stand up right now. Get up, stand up. Don't give up the fight. Don't give it up, don't give it up. Get Republican up, identification has reached a 25-year low, if we are to believe the latest numbers from Gallup. 42% of Americans, on average, identified as independent in 2013, the highest Gallup has measured since it started surveying that via phone 25 years ago. Meanwhile, Republican identification, the number of people who say, I am a Republican, is down to 25%, the lowest number in 25 years. 31% uh, Democratic identification unchanged over the last four years but down 36% from 2008. Lewis, I think there's two questions here. Question number one is, what does it mean 
or what are the causes of fewer people identifying as Republicans and to a lesser degree Democrats? But more importantly, does it represent something specific in terms of the political views, right? Are independents moving towards a more liberal point of view or a more conservative point of view? That's really the key thing. And certainly, with more Republicans moving to independence than Democrats moving to independence, and overall, with the surveys and polls that we've analyzed over the last four years, there is no question that the decrease in the number of those who identify as Republicans is coinciding, coinciding with a liberalization on a, on a majority of important issues. That is definitely part of it, but also Republican is kind of becoming uh, a dirty word. Uh, you know, there are a lot of intelligent conservatives out there who don't want to give themselves the same name as Sarah Palin or <laughs> Marco Rubio or uh, any number of embarrassing Republicans. So I think that's part of it, too. The third important question about this change towards political independence, I guess, for lack of a better term, is will it actually lead to third party viability at the national level? I'm not actually sure that it will because many, many independents I speak to are not independents because they have any particular interest in voting for a third party or they, they care about third parties. It's more because they just don't want to be associated with one of two political parties where often they feel that either, number one, the parties are too similar on too many issues to really be distinct, which is not my personal view necessarily, but that, that's what some people will say or because they want to simply not be tied to one party over the other and just feel more independent. I don't know necessarily that this will lead to third-party viability. You think you got it, oh, you think you got it, but got it, just don't get it till there's nothing at all. We get together, oh, we get together, but separate's always better than there's feelings involved. If what they say that nothing is forever The what makes, the what makes, the what makes Love the exceptions Why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why Are we so in denial when we know we're not happy So, in the state of Florida, uh, we've had an onslaught of Republicans leaving the Republican Party and going over to become Democrats. Why is that? Well, they're going to explain in a second. But first, remember, Charlie Crist, who was a former Republican governor of Florida, has already left the party. He's now a Democrat. Uh, and now the news is Anna uh, Rivas Logan is also leaving. She was a former uh, Florida state representative. She was a Republican activist. Before that, she served on the Miami-Dade County School Board. So she's been a Republican for a long time. Uh, and what happened to her, by the way? Primaried. No Republican is ever Republican enough. So they went and got her. Uh, they merged their districts. She lost to a more conservative Republican, and off she goes. Now, could that be part of her motivation? Sure. You've got to be realistic, and you've got to keep that in mind. But she explains what she calls her motivation and what has to be at least a part of the equation. Quote, the GOP of today is not the party I joined. It's not the party of my parents. It's a party that has been radicalized and held hostage by a group of extremists. It's a party that attacks women and minorities, and one that asked me and my former Hispanic Republican colleagues in the Florida legislature to turn on their own people by supporting extreme anti-immigrant policies. It's a party I was no longer proud to be a part of. So, like I said, look, keep it real, man. She, she, and the Florida Republicans are saying, oh, she just wants to get back into office and she wants to run as a Democrat. That might be true, okay? But 
Was she also mad about their anti-immigrant stance and their stance on women? Well, if she wasn't and she really believed in those principles, my guess is she would have stayed in the Republican Party and she would have defended it. But or she, you know what she could have done? She had another choice. She could have tried to outflank the other Republicans and be even more right-wing, right? But she didn't want to do that. She was sick of that because she thinks that they are extreme. So she's like, well, then why don't I go and become a Democrat? Which is what a lot of Republicans are thinking all over across the country. But again, specifically in Florida, because I want to give you one more quote, and I love this because it comes from Pablo Pantoja, who was the former RNC state director for Florida Hispanic Outreach. That's awesome. So how'd that turn out? Uh, let me quote him. Quote, it doesn't take much to see the culture of intolerance surrounding the Republican Party today. I have wondered before about the seemingly harsh undertones about immigrants and others. The discourse that moves the Republican Party is filled with this anti-immigrant movement and overall radicalization that is far removed from reality. Now, he's not running for any office. His job was to reach out to the Latinos. Okay, and he reached out and after slapping them enough times, he's like, I don't want to do that anymore, man. So I don't agree with this party. This party's extreme. So he left as well. So if we say that Republicans are extreme, don't take our word for it. Just ask other Republicans. Yes, they will always hold on to a certain percentage of the electorate. Probably in the ballpark of about 33%. A third of Americans will never leave them. Remember, a third of Americans were so conservative, they didn't want the American Revolution. Not only were they, there was a third that was unsure, there was a third that wanted the revolution, but there was a third that said, no, 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 we love the monarchy, we're going to hold on to the monarchy, King George, King George, right? So there's always a third of the country that's unbelievably wrong. <laughs> well, this is that third of the country. You're wrong about virtues of Christianity, and you're wrong if you agree with Sean Hannity, if you think that pride is about nationality, you're wrong. You're wrong when you imprison people turning tricks. And you're wrong about trickle-down economics. If you think that punk rock doesn't mix with politics, you're wrong. Uh, you all recall that Peter Schiff was on uh, The Daily Show a couple of weeks ago now. And um, he was justifying why there should be no minimum wage. And in justifying, he said, look, there'd be people who would be willing to work for, you know, $2. Like, uh, it may not sound politically, I don't know what the politically correct term is, he said, but he said... Uh, anyway, I had to call them mentally retarded. Mentally retarded. Um, and so, a week uh, later, I guess, this is now almost two weeks ago, he uh, sent an email out to the suckers who are on his email list. And um, he talked about how intellectually dishonest The Daily Show was. Which also, I think, shows just how intellectually dishonest he is. And perhaps deficient, but I would argue d dishonest. When you are invited onto The Daily Show, if you don't expect that you're going to be part of the joke then at this point, you're a moron. But I imagine Peter Schiff knew this. And so he's being intellectually dishonest because he just went on there to get the publicity which he got. So suck it up.
You knew what you were getting into. In fact, the irony is, is that on his free market principles or whatever they are, he entered into this uh, arrangement with The Daily Show with far more knowledge and less coercion than the typical worker ent enters into uh, a situation with any employer or a typical consumer enters into with any provider of a service or product. But he wrote, I mean, there's a lot of whining in here. I'll try to, uh, you know, edit some of that out. But he writes, in a free market, businesses compete for customers by keeping prices down and for labor by keeping wages up. Any employer offering even low-skilled workers just $2 an hour would be outbid by others offering to pay more. However, I did suggest two groups of people might be willing to work for $2 per hour. The first group, which was edited out, was the unpaid interns who tend to value work experience and connections more than pay. Now, here's what's problematic with that. The reality is that there shouldn't be unpaid interns. I guess if you're getting college, uh, if you're getting college credit, but in the main, there should not be unpaid interns because then this valuable work experience is available to only one class of people. And this is what the libertarian ideology is all about. It is available to people who are fortunate enough to have families that can afford to subsidize their working for free. That's wealthy people. <laughs> and so I mean, if these working experiences are so valuable, then we are doing a disservice to society by not making them available to everyone. But that's just day. And then he goes, since many interns work for free, $2 an hour would be an improvement. But, but why would a company pay interns they can get for free $2 an hour? They wouldn't. So by his own logic, that's simply a red herring. In fact, he should be thanking The Daily Show for cutting that out, because that makes him look like even more of a moron. Since employers are afraid to hire them without pay for, via, uh, for, for violating uh, labor laws or inviting lawsuits, they often hire young people working for college credit. I don't get that. Uh, these individuals are forced to pay college tuition to get a job they could have had for free had there been no minimum wage. Well, the value of college is not just that you get to do internships. I think he has that backwards. I think is if you can afford to go to college and have your parents pay for it, then you can, uh, they can also subsidize your internships. Uh, what? I think he's got that backwards. The other group was the intellectually disabled, who are in fact already exempt from the current minimum wage law by federal regulation. So, in other words, the example I gave was one about exploited people that only allow the wealthy to have uh, the best opportunities to uh, get mentored or to uh, learn about a profession. And the other example I gave was people who are not even subject to the minimum laws anyways, minimum wage laws anyways. So, in other words, I was talking out of my arse twice. It just so happens that The Daily Show uh, took the piece that was funnier and made me look like more of an idiot with less, with more efficiency, <laughs> which is what comedy is all about.
And if you don't like the idea of The Daily Show mocking you and you're Peter Schiff, here's the smartest thing for you to do. Don't go on there. There's no doubt in my mind, there's no doubt in my mind that if Peter Schiff was asked to go back on, he would say, absolutely, absolutely, I'll do it for free. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, you know the guy who questioned the wisdom of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 when he was first running for office? Finds himself at the center of yet another race-related controversy this week. Uh, yesterday, the Washington Free Beacon published an article titled Rebel Yell, which detailed the previous career of, Ron, of Rand Paul's right-hand man, a guy by the name of Jack Hunter. He co-authored Rand Paul's first book. While working as a radio host in South Carolina, Hunter apparently appeared wearing a, in public, wearing a Confederate flag mask, openly called for secession, and defended the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. This is Rand Paul's wingman, right? He called himself the Southern Avenger. He was the chairman of the Charleston Wing of the League of the South, a group which, according to its own website, quote, advocates the secession and subsequent independence of the southern states from this forced union and the formation of a southern republic. Right. Rand Paul's trying to now separate himself from Hunter. That's going to be kind of hard because the Southern Avenger isn't just some random staffer on his Senate staff. He's a good buddy of Rand Paul's. He helped him write his first book, The Tea Party Goes to Washington, back in 2010. So it now looks like Senator Paul is continuing in a great family tradition. I mean, even though he denies responsibility... His father, Ron Paul, published a series of racist newsletters during a 1996 congressional campaign. And we really shouldn't be all that surprised by either Ron or Rand Paul's connection to far-right racism, and that's because they're libertarians. And libertarianism is the velvet glove over the iron fist of racism. Here's how it works. When you have an entrenched racial and economic class that has ruled a continent for five centuries, they have well established the levers and the levels of power and wealth. And they will and do, generation after generation, do whatever is necessary to hang on to that wealth and power. History shows us this. I mean, you know, the history of Reconstruction, the whole history of integration in the 50s and 60s, 
that the only thing strong enough to challenge the political and economic power of a multi-century hereditary ruling class, particularly one based on race, is the power of government. It was government that made Alabama Governor George Wallace and Georgia Governor Lester Maddox integrate their states. It was government that both passed and made the South finally accept the 14th and 15th Amendments. Here's George Wallace in his inaugural address as governor of Alabama back in 1963. I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. He was talking about was government, right? federal government. But Wallace lost that fight because the power of government, when appropriately used, is greater than the power of wealth, class, or race. It took government to break the stranglehold of white rule in the 1870s and 1880s. But even that white power structure reasserted itself and fought to reclaim its power, leading to Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896, uh, which set up a half century or more of segregation, legal segregation, legal apartheid right here in the United States which kept into place the political and economic privileges of white people. So now along comes a political philosophy, libertarianism, that says everything is fine, everything's equal, the government should just get the hell out of the way. They say this when the median net worth of a white family in the United States is $110,700 and that of a black family is $4,000. They say this when in the entire history of the U.S. Senate, there have only been three African-Americans elected to that body. They say this when just 20 minutes after the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the biggest and most populous state of the old Confederacy, Texas, immediately put into place discriminatory voter suppression laws and began gerrymandering. So in effect... When conservatives and libertarians say government should get out of the way, what they're really saying is let's lock into place white political power, white wealth, and white privilege. Of course, not all liber libertarians think of themselves as racist and most probably don't see how their get-rid-of-government policies prop up institutional bigotry. But the reality is that when you blast government as the root of all evil, when you neuter its power you end up weakening the only thing that can keep the ruling elite, a racial ruling elite, in check. And when you do that, the rich and powerful race hangs on to their wealth and power, and the poorer minorities lose even more of what little they have. You know, in the end, it really doesn't matter whether Rand Paul agrees with Jack Hunter that the Confederacy was a good idea. He's trying to say, oh, I know. Because by going on and on about states' rights and freedom from government tyranny, sort of like old George Wallace, Senator Rand Paul and his friends on the libertarian right make sure that the values of old Dixie and an entrenched racial elite and racial inequality continue in the United States. Libertarianism truly is the velvet glove of a nice-sounding freedom policy, a glove that covers the iron fist of 500 years of genocide and apartheid in the United States.
that covers the iron fist of white privilege. This is Yao from uh, San Diego. I just finished listening to the trans episode, and uh, first of all, I want to thank you for uh, for putting it out there. Uh, I certainly learned a lot, uh, and I just wanted to say that I, I think we're going through uh, a huge change right now um, from a society that defined itself and then dictated to its members who and what they are, with very little leeway and, and margin. We're moving to a society that is defined by its members being who they are. And that's a historical change. And and those changes are always hard and, and they're difficult to, to go through and, and they're always based on, on education and on knowledge. And and I think that the thing about those those changes is that they have a tipping point. There's a certain point where enough hearts and minds have been changed and it becomes common knowledge and, and understood. And you never really see those tipping points until you pass them, until you look back, and, and, and it becomes obvious. Now, the trans community is clearly nowhere near that tipping point, and, and people still walk around thinking that it's a choice, and it's, uh, that's, that's the fascination with the change, because, uh, you know, it's looked at as, I used to be a Yankees fan, now I'm a Mets fan, I used to eat meat, now I decided to be a vegetarian. And, and that's also the fascination, I think, with, with the operation, with the point of making the decision or the point the decision was, was evident. Um, and that's really where a lot of education needs to, to take place. But, but I think shows like the one you just did certainly help get us closer to that tipping point and, and certainly help get the word out and, and just change hearts and minds. So uh, I, I appreciate you doing that. Thank you very much and, and keep up the great work. Hey, Jay. Uh, this is Marty calling from Los Angeles. You know, I listened to the last episode, and, and my feeling is that 2013 into this year, it's been this era that has opened the awareness to transgender issues in the mass media, and for better or worse. And certainly it's been clumsy, as demonstrated in your first trans-themed episode, which, by the way, I learned so much from, and yet you, and you had the best of intentions, and yet... I also learned uh, so much about how I, how much I don't know uh, when you discussed the repercussions from it. And I'm glad you didn't get glitter bombed like Dan Savage has in the past. And I'm glad you took the heat for the, the stuff that I didn't know. But um, one issue that has come up in my personal life that I'm not clear about is uh, sports. So a couple of years back, there was a controversy in the sport of fencing. There was an athlete who had competed at a medium level in men's competitions who transitioned in adulthood and then went on to become the women's world champion in her age group. So either there was a leap in her athletic skill that coincided with her transition, or she had a physical advantage over her cis female competitors, or some combination of both. So the, the, the dilemma in the community was, is this fair? And in my mind, I'm pretty sure it is, 
but I know of at least one fencer who retired in protest, who was at the top of her game, and I'm completely sympathetic to her frustration. And, you know, this is not as serious an issue as incarceration or hate crimes, which you covered really well in the most late, latest episode. But I hope some other listeners or, or you can help clarify the issue. So, uh, because, you know, I know people involved in this and I want to be able to engage them with some knowledge and insight. So thanks in advance and uh, thanks for doing the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So so what I want to do today is kind of do a postscript, not to this episode, but to the previous episode on trans rights. And specifically, I played a segment that discussed the interview between Piers Morgan and uh, Janet Mock, who's a trans uh, woman who wrote a book and was sort of on a media tour. And that the first interview he did with her went really badly. It, it was it was very ham-handed, but from everything I've seen, everything I've heard from him, I think it was very well-meaning. I think he tried to do a good job. I think he tried to you know be very cordial and and you know promote her uh, very heavily and and sort of take take her side. It was not meant to be an adversarial interview at all. And and so he very sort of confidently stepped into this interview, not realizing he was walking in the wrong direction. Uh, the interview focused very much on her, you know, physical transformation, her, uh, you know, intera- you know, personal interactions with, uh, you know, boyfriends, and and talking about, you know, how do you break the news about physical transformation and so on. And, and the, all of this was sort of the reason why the episode uh, of mine that I posted was titled. If you're talking about genitals, then you've already missed the point because that's exactly what he did. He, he was completely missing what should have been the point um, and had no idea. And so the reaction he got to that interview was very negative from the trans community and rightfully so. But he was like dumbfounded by it, just could not understand it. And and so – Today, I'm going to try to sort of explain what was going on uh, from his point of view, you know, because straight, white, cis guys don't get their point of views explained enough. Um, but I, I'm going to try to do both sides, but I, I obviously I can do a better job of explaining Pierce's side because that's he's part of the community that I identify with. Um, but I, I will try to do both sides. So I, I gave myself a couple days to think about this. And, um, and I think I can explain it, but please do not be confused and, and do not confuse explaining with excusing or justifying. I'm not excusing or justifying. I'm simply explaining. It's really about empathy. Uh, this is a theme that comes up over and over again. I'm a big fan of empathy. I think everyone should have it. I think everyone should, uh, you know, use it as often as possible. Helps you understand where other people are coming from. Helps you understand the world better and so on. And so, I did, as I like to do, I, I came up with an analogy that I think sort of hits the nail on the head for this. And what I came up with was The Truman Show. Many people will be familiar with The Truman Show, whether you saw the movie or not. The basic premise uh, many will be uh, aware of is a, a baby is born and his entire life is brought up in a literal metal dome that 
encircles an entire community and the entire community and everyone in it is completely fake. He is the only person who is real. He, you know, he, he reacts to the world in a very genuine way. He lives his life as best he knows how, assuming everything is real. And he's the only person who doesn't know that everything around him is fake. So he has these blinders on because he doesn't realize that everything is fake. And the moment that he learns that the entire world is fake and that nothing is as it seems is, I think, based on my own experience, because I've gone through this myself on this show, I think that learning that the entire world is different than you imagined it was, as Truman does in the movie, is more or less what it's like to be confronted with your enormous amounts of privilege and to be told the way you see the world as an incredibly privileged person is not the way the rest of us see it or you know many of us see it and so with peers in this interview situation he followed up the first interview with a second to basically confront uh, Janet Mock with the backlash that that he had received and insisted that he had been very well-meaning and that he had tried his best to not be offensive and and to be supportive of her and he could not for the life of him understand why he was being vilified when he was trying to do good and i think that it can be that that moment that he experienced was that sort of freak out moment when you realize or or at least when you're told Everything you think is real is different than you think it is. So I, I said this story is about empathy. Obviously, when when you're dealing between you know two communities, one the enormously dominant community that Piers Morgan belongs to, rich, white, straight cis men in America, even though he's from England, <laughs> discussing transgender issues with a trans black woman, empathy necessarily is going to flow and needs to flow like 99% in one direction and 1% in the other because there's just not much about Piers Morgan that you need to empathize with. Uh, not much about his life is you know terribly difficult given this comparison. But there is that 1%. So as I said, to explain, not to excuse or justify – I really sort of identified with that freak out moment he had being confronted and being told what you thought was real and, you know, the way you conducted that interview and the way you thought it was good was not is is something that will like really mess with a person. So if you can imagine what it would be like to wake up and, and realize that everything about your world is fake, like Truman did in the Truman show, that'll give you a sense uh, of what it's like to be you know, confronted the way Pierce Morgan was. Now, how he deals with that and how any of us deal with being confronted, uh, you know, with information like that is where you really start to get, uh, where you get to start judging people and, and determining like, oh, okay, like, are you taking this well or are you digging your heels in and insisting, no, I was definitely right. And, you know, all of th- this whole fake world around me, that really is the real world. You know, and unfortunately, that's the path Piers Morgan took. Um, so, so then he loses all sympathy. Unfortunately for him, that's from his perspective. Uh, from the other, and like I said, I, I can't possibly explain the other side nearly as well. 
But what's important is to not, not just, you know, think like, yeah, right. So, you know, as Piers Morgan did in his follow-up interview, he started giving Janet Mock uh, sort of advice on how to talk to people like him and how, you know, it would be great for your community if you treated people like me better uh, because you would be better to, you know, it would be better off for you to have us as allies than enemies and so on. And the important thing to remember that he was absolutely not remembering or coming anywhere near remembering is basically the same level of unbelievable privilege that made him <laughs> grow up in sort of a metaphorical metal dome protected entirely from the real world. She experienced essentially the exact opposite of that and grew up in a world in which she sort of and, and people in the trans community see the real world and recognize that that real world does not accept them readily and, you know, puts them in huge amounts of danger on a regular basis. And so to expect that members of a community that are so unbelievably oppressed in those, in those ways that the burden should be on them to conduct themselves in a way that is sort of acceptable and digestible for us in the cis community is just so incredibly unfair. It's ridiculous. And so, you know, to sum up, yes, I do think that empathy needs to go both ways. I do think it's really important to understand why a person like Piers Morgan would react the way he did when confronted with basically the news that like everything you know is wrong. I think it's absolutely normal and human to have sort of a freak out moment as he did. Um, and then, as I said, he took it way too far and went completely in the wrong direction after that initial freak out moment. I think the freak out is understandable where he went after is really not acceptable. Um, and, and then also we need to understand why, you know, his freak out moment, I think was spurred on mostly by how he was sort of, uh, attacked not, and not just like gently and nicely told, uh, you know, what he got wrong. And so then it's important to understand, well, why was he attacked rather than just gently and nicely told that he was wrong? And that comes back to, you know, a, a community that is under such an incredible degree of oppression that, you know, to expect a community like that to be, you know, measured and calm when they are consistently sort of beaten down literally and metaphorically and and uh, you know oppressed in all these ways and constantly misunderstood that to be misunderstood in such a a big way on a big news channel you know is something you can imagine getting upset about so those are the basics as i see them you know as as i began with you know it, it really all comes down to empathy and our ability to understand other people like essentially all sort of arguments like this one stem from people not being able to see the other person's point of view exactly. It's not, it's not exactly a disagreement as much as it is a fundamental misunderstanding between the two. And that's what makes it sort of especially frustrating and, you know, why so many people, myself included, felt compelled to dive into it and talk about it and analyze it and so on. Uh, so that's going to be it for today. If you want to throw in your two cents on this or anything else, 
The number again, 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, donating your account at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on our award-nominated Facebook and Twitter pages. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and the music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained We can see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past all the sad stories